Matthew chapter 3, with God's help, we'll be looking at verses 13 through 17 this afternoon. Also printed for you in your bulletin, Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. What you're about to hear now is the very word of God. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And praise God for his holy word. Well, I imagine you heard about it. Uh, maybe you even watched it on TV in May earlier this year. About 2,000 plus VIPs gathered in the city of London. Members of the royal family, prominent politicians, heads of state from foreign countries, the site, Westminster Abbey, historic church where generations of monarchs had been crowned, where significant events in the life of the church taken place, forming of the Westminster Standards, for example, and millions of people, not just in the United Kingdom, but around the world, tuned in to watch this momentous ceremony live. It was, of course, the coronation of Charles III, who was crowned King of the United Kingdom, His mother, Elizabeth II, had reigned for over 70 years, and her coronation event was one to be remembered, one of the first live broadcast coronations. It was iconic, both hers and Charles III. I'm sure you can envision some of it. Royals wearing elaborate gowns and tuxedos, crowns, jewels, scepters, Even the stained glass of that beautiful chapel, almost as if the heavens themselves were open to witness the momentous occasion. The ceremony is composed of several different important elements. First, the VIPs process into the chapel, take their seats, and wait until the king and the queen arrive. And when they do, all stand in honor of him as they process down the aisle to the front of the church. All eyes are on them. Then, after the procession, Charles takes oaths. A Bible is presented, upon which he swears to govern the people with justice and mercy. He swears to protect the kingdom. He also swears to uphold the church 
to maintain the laws of God, to promote the peace of the gospel, the true profession of it, and closes those oaths by swearing in this way, the things which I have here promised, I will perform and keep, so help me God. The ceremony then proceeds to some other very significant events, one of which is next, the preaching of a sermon by the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, who exhorts the people and indeed the entire kingdom to proclaim and profess their trust, their uh, homage to their undoubted king, who is the defender of all. Following that, unlike any presidential ceremony you might see, This king is then anointed with holy oil. The king sits in a ceremonial anointing chair, hundreds of years old, where the priest then pours this oil, marking the king for his service, setting him apart, crowning him, as it were, with that oil. Following that, towards the close of the ceremony, various items of regalia are presented to the king. Spurs, globes, many scepters, all symbolizing different things about his reign, including a scepter of the dove, a symbol of his spiritual authority of mercy. At the very close of this ceremony, to respond to the coronation, the Archbishop of Canterbury calls all to rise and sing those famous words of the national anthem, perhaps you've heard them. God save our gracious king. Long live our noble king. God save the king. Thy choicest gifts in store on him be pleased to pour. Long may he reign. May he defend our laws and ever give us cause to sing with heart and voice. God save the king. Now this momentous ceremony is a pride the pride of United Kingdom. But it's really meant to mark and commence the rule and reign of the king, Charles as the king of the United Kingdom. And what we see in our text this afternoon is a coronation ceremony of Jesus as king. We witness a unique ceremony that commences, that starts his rule and reign, his public ministry, We witness an event where he as king pledges to rule with mercy. He makes public oaths, as it were. His first words of proclamation are heard here. It is here that we see his majesty acknowledged. It is here where we see him marked and anointed, set apart for his rule, his ministry. It is here that we hear also a public announcement of his reign as king. And it is here that we, that his subjects, receive him as king. Friends, John has prepared us, John the Baptist has prepared us to receive Jesus as king leading up to this event. He's been proclaiming the kingdom of heaven. People have been coming out of the cities, out of the polluted land, to the wilderness to receive a baptism for the forgiveness of sins And now they're in the wilderness waiting for their Messiah, their king, to lead them out of that wilderness back into the promised land. Who is that king? Who is going to lead them? It's not John, but it is Jesus, the one he has prepared the way for. So what we need to see in this passage 
asking ourselves, who is going to lead us out of the wilderness, out of the trials of this life, out of the pollution of this world? Who is going to lead us out of that into our promised land? Where is our king? Who is our king? Well, our text clearly tells us that Jesus is our king. Jesus' baptism reveals to us that he is the promised Messiah, and we need to respond accordingly. The question, as we dig into this text, that you need to ask yourself, ourselves, is how will you respond to him as king? How will you respond to Jesus as king upon seeing, witnessing this coronation event? There's three ways that I want us to see how to respond. We must respond, indeed, if you're to be led out of this wilderness of life into the promised land with Jesus leading you as king. Our text gives us three important ways. Number one, first, respond by humble submission to the king. By humble submission to the king. You can see that very clearly here in the first two verses. John is a model of humble submission. As I said, we know, John knows, is he's not going to be the one leading the people out of this wilderness. He's called them out, but he's been preparing the way for the one who will, as it were, lead the people back through the Jordan and into the promised land. He said back in chapter 3, verse 11, there is someone who is coming after me who is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. Well, here he comes. Verse 13, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Right away, we are clued in, keyed in that this is the one we've been waiting for. And as we are clued in, though, you are immediately aware of a problem in the text, I I trust. And that is, why does Jesus come out to John to be baptized? That is a problem in the text that is going to be resolved throughout the entire thing, the entire passage. John sees this. John sees Jesus coming. He recognizes Jesus. In fact, in John's gospel, the apostle John, in his gospel, uh, John the Baptist is quoted as saying, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. In other words, John sees Jesus coming and says, This is the spotless Lamb of God. He has no sin." So why is he coming out to receive a baptism for the forgiveness of sins? That's the the question here. And so John says in verse 14, John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus, you bring a baptism that is superior to mine. Jesus, I need your baptism, not the other way around. John's response, in other words, when he sees Jesus coming as king, is to humble himself. To know that he is not greater than this one, but he is less. John knows that his job is to exalt this one, to exalt Jesus, and not himself. I remember reading a story once about uh, Corey Ten Boom. I'm sure I know many of you know that name. Corey Ten Boom was once asked, How do you stay so humble? What's the key to humility? Her reply was simple. I it stuck with me. She said, you know, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, much later in his ministry, he rode in Jerusalem 
on Palm Sunday on the back of a donkey, and all these people are praising Jesus, singing songs to him, laying down branches, laying down their garments. Do you think that for one moment it ever entered the head of that donkey that that praise was for him? She said, if, if I can be that donkey upon which Jesus rides into his glory, then I'll give him all the praise and the honor. When Jesus comes from Galilee to the Jordan to John, do you think that for one moment John got it into his head that all the attention should be on him? He was never confused about what his job was doesn't try to exalt his own name. Instead, he kneels before Jesus and says, I'm going to give him all the honor and praise. Here is one who is much mightier than I. I need to humble myself in front of him. Here's the thing. Most people go through life afraid that people will not think enough of them. John the Baptist went through life afraid that people would think too much of him and not Jesus. We need to learn from John that in our lives as well, we ought not to be so concerned about what people think about us, but how they can see Jesus exalted in our lives through our humble submission to him as king. So if you're to respond to Jesus here, his crowning, his coronation, then you must respond as well by worshiping him giving all majesty to him, bowing before his majesty. Because that's the only way you and I are going to get from here in the wilderness to the promised land. Not on my own pride, not on your own pride, not on your own accomplishments, not on your presumption as the Pharisees and Sadducees presumed on their bloodline. The only way you can get from here to there is by recognizing that Jesus is the only one who can get you there. It's the same as the centurion will cry out later in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 8, when he says, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to even come under my roof. Just say the word and you can heal. That's the type of disposition, the attitude that we need to have as well, because no one in the kingdom of heaven is crossing the Jordan River, as it were. No one is walking through the wilderness of life on their own. There will be no one in heaven high-fiving themselves for getting them themselves there on their own strength, but only through Jesus and his finished work, his accomplished work. It's the first thing that we need to see here. We see it in John's response. John's own life must be our testimony as well, that Jesus, you must increase so that I can decrease. But there's a second thing I want us to see here in the text, that if we're truly going to recognize Jesus as king, we must respond by seeing him as your substitute. See him as your substitute. We see this in verse 15. Now, uh, as we do get to this verse packed with significance, we're still, though, asking ourselves this question that we started with. Like I said, it's going to drive this whole passage. We're still wondering, Jesus, why do you need to be baptized? We haven't answered that. We, we see John's humble submission in that, in that question, 
And here in verse 15, we do get an answer. And the only way that I can begin to answer that is by looking back at the text here. It's right here in verse 15. Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. Why does Jesus need to be baptized? Not because Jesus has sinned but to fulfill all righteousness, he says. Meaning, his entire life, Jesus perfectly obeys all of God's commands. And he never fails to obey God's will and obey God's law. He fulfills completely. He says, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. You know, friends, there are many people in this world still who believe, if you ask them the question, if you die today and go to heaven, uh, and Jesus asks you, why should I let you into my heaven? There are people who believe they would say, you should let me in because, you know, I haven't really ever stolen anything. I haven't ever murdered anybody. I haven't robbed any banks. I haven't committed adultery. So I, you should let me in because basically I'm a good person. Well, the Bible says, makes it very clear that God's standard for righteousness, for living, dwelling with him, is not being pretty good, mostly good. His standard is perfect righteousness, completely obeying every single one of God's laws, never failing to conform to his perfect commands. And since Adam, not one of us has been able to meet this requirement until Jesus. Only one person ever satisfied God's law, and it was Jesus Christ. He came to fulfill all righteousness. This is why Jesus submitted to John's baptism. John's baptism, God requires of everyone, a baptism of confession, confessing sins, at least obeying God's will, submitting to this act, demonstrating that even this Jesus would conform to showing that throughout his whole life, Jesus would obey God's commands. This is what we call, in theological terms, the active obedience of Christ. His passive obedience is his death on the cross, all of his his suffering. His active obedience, meaning he never failed to uphold God's commands in any way, even upholding, fulfilling God's command to be baptized where the first Adam failed to obey God's law as our covenant head, then Jesus, as our second Adam, fulfills it in every single way. This is why he was baptized, to assure you, to assure you, believer, that you, if you are embedded into his life through your baptism, you share in his perfect righteousness. You are counted righteous because of his perfect righteousness. This is what we need to see in Jesus' baptism. But if we stop there, I'm afraid we're actually not getting to an even perhaps deeper significance. Something that I think John was missing when Jesus came to him to be baptized. There's still something here that I don't want us to miss. You see, John sees Jesus coming to him for baptism like all other poor sinners, destitute people of Israel. 
And what is John's response? John's response is basically, Jesus, what are you doing? Uh, you're not supposed to be there. You are our Messiah, our Savior, our sinless, spotless Lamb of God. Jesus, you need to be up here, with, up here at the, at, at, the, at the top. You need to be preaching to these people. What are you doing down there? And Jesus' response is basically, no, John. You know, John, don't you see? This is exactly why I came. I came to be with sinners. I came to stand with sinners, to sit with sinners, to identify with sinners. I came to take their place. I have no need for repentance, but you do, and they do, and that's why I'm here. What John failed to see at Jesus' baptism at first is that it's not simply for Jesus' sake. It's for the sake of others that Jesus was baptized. Jesus isn't submitting to baptism for personal reasons only. It's for redemptive purposes. It's as if Jesus is saying here, look, if you don't understand my baptism for the sake of sinners, to identify with them, to be a substitute for them, then you're not really going to understand my life as a substitute. You're not going to understand my suffering as a substitute. You're not going to understand uh, my ministry. You're not going to be, you're not understand my living for you, my crucifixion for you, my resurrection for you my glorification and ascension for you. All of it, John, is an act of substitution for sinners. See, isn't it a blessing? Isn't it a comfort to know that Jesus even identifies with you when you confess your sins? Many of the psalms that we sing are psalms of Christ. Psalm 51, when David cries out, confessing his sin. I mean, those are actually, we can say the words of Christ as well, not because he was with sin, but because he so identifies with us that he can confess sins as our substitute. This is the mission of Jesus. Jesus was sent to suffer as the righteous for the unrighteous, 1 Peter 3.18. He God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So your response to Jesus as king is to rely on him, trust in him as your substitute. The way you get from here, the wilderness of this life, the promised land, by following that king, that substitute, to see that Jesus is standing in your place. You get here from there, from here to there, not on your own righteousness, but on the righteousness of Christ. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. You stand before God as if you were Christ, because Christ stood before God as if he were you. There's only one by whose righteousness you'll enter the kingdom. There's only one person's works that will justify you before God. 
You are justified by works, but they're not yours. They're Jesus' perfect works because he's your substitute. So rely on him, your king. That's the second response we need to see here in this text. We first humbly submit, as John does. It gives us a model of submitting to the king. We also need to see him, rely on him as our substitute. It's perfect righteousness. He identifies with us. But then third and finally, we also need to respond by depending on his power. Depending on his power. Let me unpack that a little bit. Verses 16 and 17. Let me read this again here, these precious words. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now, there's a lot to be said in just these two verses. Let's stand back for just a second and recognize here that in this baptism and Jesus coming out of the water, we see the Trinity, the triune God on display. I don't know if you noticed that. Sometimes we wonder, we believe as Christians, we confessed it earlier, right? I believe in God the Father. I believe in Jesus Christ's Son, the Holy Spirit. Well, here we see all three on display, acting together, loving each other, in communion with each other. We see God the Father's voice. We hear it declaring his love for this Son, also proclaiming the Son's eternality. We hear, we see God the Holy Spirit descending in the form of a dove. We see God the Son, of course, in Jesus Christ receiving his commission, his coronation, from the Father and the anointing of the Holy Spirit, all working together as the triune God. One of the most beautiful places in Scripture where we can see this on display. But I do find it, I hope you do too, I do find it a strange comfort here. A strange comfort that we hear this voice from heaven that proclaims, here is my beloved Son. Stop and think about this. At this point in Jesus' life, all he's really done is he's been born. His family has fled to Egypt, come back, and now he's here 30 or so years later. Why does God call him beloved? He hasn't really done anything. This is not the Jesus yet who has performed miracles or performed miraculous signs. He hasn't even preached a sermon yet. And yet God calls him my beloved son. I just want us to stop and just see the lesson here for us that's sort of embedded here with all the other stuff going on, which is God delights in you, not because of anything you've done for him, but your disposition towards him. That's the primary thing. Does God delight when we do good works through the Holy Spirit, of course? But you cannot earn God's favor. You cannot buy God's approval. God delights in you not because of your performance for him, but because your heart belongs to him. So if you're relatively silent in terms of performance in your own eyes for many years, 
you're fighting and you're striving to pursue God's will through the power of the Holy Spirit, and it seems to you like your progress is very slow, well, you need to remember and be assured that God does look at you and see you as a Christian striving and says, Behold, my beloved son or my beloved daughter, whom I love. Because your heart belongs to him. Your acceptance is not based on how much you can buy God's favor or approval. It's because your heart is given to him. It's important to keep that in mind as we look at these final verses and what we unpack here with Jesus' coronation, his anointing. Notice this, the, the Holy Spirit, especially on display here in the voice from heaven. I want to unpack this a little bit. There's a lot going on here. Three things I want you to see and what's going on with the, the Spirit in the form of a dove, this voice from heaven. What is going on here? Well, number one, what we need to see here is that this voice and the dove is a confirmation of Jesus and his ministry. Immediately, the text says, when Jesus comes out of the water, this voice is heard. The Holy Spirit is coming down. That's meant to tell us there's no delay. John did the right thing. God is affirming this, that this is his son, the Messiah, who's long awaited. This Jesus is the king. It's presenting to his own people that he is the promised Savior, the Christ. The voice of God the Father proclaims this in the words of Psalm 2, verse 7, that we sang earlier. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Again, confirming that this is the promised Messiah. This voice of God also confirms using language that brings us back to a place like Isaiah 42, verse 1. Notice the, the resonance here that Isaiah 42, verse 1 says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. The voice of heaven, you realize, is not so much just for Jesus himself, as if Jesus lacked anything, but it does confirm to John and to us that Jesus' identity is one of the king who has a mission. Just as the prophets of old, many of them, if you look back in the Old Testament, a similar type of imagery of the heavens being opened and the voice of God giving them, commissioning them for their mission. In the same way, Jesus is receiving his commission in this coronation ceremony. But there's a second thing here I don't want us to miss. There's a lot of symbolism here. So I want us to walk through this a little bit. We also see here, when the anointing of the Spirit is a demonstration of the nature of Jesus's, of Jesus and his mission. We see the nature of Jesus and his mission. Have you ever asked yourself, I'm sure you have, like my, when I read this, why, why does the Holy Spirit descend as a dove? What does that mean? Why doesn't the Holy Spirit explode on him like a like on fire? I mean, John does talk about Jesus will bring a baptism with, right, with, with the Spirit and with fire. Or why doesn't the Spirit attack him like a hawk or an eagle? It's in the form of a dove. 
Now, there's there's nowhere in the Old Testament. If you're gonna, if you're wondering, can I just flip in the Old Testament and figure out exactly what is the symbolism here? There's nowhere in the Old Testament where the Spirit is symbolized as a dove. So there's been a lot of speculation here about what this means. But I think, especially in the Reformed tradition, we have some good um, perspective on this. There's a couple ways that we need to think about this dove, the significance of it, and the Holy Spirit. Number one, you need to see that it's 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 involving, it's showing Jesus's mission as that of new creation, demonstrating new creation. What do I mean by that? Well, if you remember way back in Genesis 1, how the earth is formed, you remember that the Bible opens up with these words in Genesis 1 verse 2. It says in the beginning of creation that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Hovering. In Jewish tradition, rabbis compared the hovering to a bird nestling its young, brooding over her young. So take that imagery of hovering, brooding over the waters. It's a picture of nursing life to give birth to life. At the same time, remember in Genesis 8, after the flood, Noah and his family are saved. The earth is covered in waters of judgment. Noah and his family are in the ark waiting to see when is it safe to leave? And when is life going to spring forth again? And after the, the world has been judged of its sin, cleansed of its sin, with those waters, they're, reci- they're uh, reciting, and Noah sends out what? A dove to see. Is there life again on the earth? And sure enough, that dove comes back with a branch showing God's judgment has been poured out and life can come again. The dove is symbolizing the new life that has come and that judgment was finished. Well, friends, in a similar way then, immediately after the baptismal waters of judgment and cleansing are poured out on Christ, he comes out of those waters and there's a dove symbolizing that hovering, brooding, has brought forth new life. And surely this is what we see throughout Jesus' ministry, isn't it? What he has come to do, has, he has come to give new life to the dead hearts of sinners. It says Nicodemus came to him in John 3, right? Jesus says to him, you must be born again. Jesus' ministry is to bring new life. The blessings of new life are found in Jesus Christ, on whom that spirit of new life dwells. He will bring life out of chaos. But there's a second aspect to this, symbolism of the dove. I think it's very powerful that we need to see here. And that is simply that the dove symbolizes peace, symbolizes friendliness, symbolizes mercy. John Calvin said that the symbol of the dove was given to us so that we may not fear to approach Christ who meets us, not in the formidable power of the Spirit, but clothed with gentle and lovely grace. Martin Luther put it like this. He said, the Father lets his voice be heard. The Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove in the friendliest of forms to show that he is not wrathful towards us, but wants to help us become holy and rescue us through Christ. 
Luther goes on to make this comparison between the voice of God at Mount Sinai that caused the people to tremble and to fear and say, Moses, you go, don't, don't make us get any closer, compares that with the voice that we hear here, just gentle, in the form of a dove that is peaceful and friendly, welcoming people to come and approach Jesus and saying, come, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You see, he's saying, this is my beloved son. You don't need to fear him. He stands here, he stands here as if he were any other humble sinner. He's not coming brandishing a sword. He's not coming with a vengeful army. You have no need to be afraid of him or God your father. So come to him. This is why we see the Holy Spirit pictured, symbolized as a dove falling on Jesus in this way as a symbol for new life and the peace that we can have with God. There's one other thing here that I want us to see in this baptism and the descending of the Spirit. And that is, we see here that Jesus is equipped for his mission. He's given, as it were, the equipment now to start his public ministry. Now, when I say that, I hope you don't, hope you don't think like Jesus is somehow deficient uh, in some way before he starts his public ministry, as if he didn't have the Holy Spirit before this. As very God, Jesus is both divine and man, but he has never lacked the Holy Spirit prior to this. But this falling afresh of the Holy Spirit is his anointing. Christ means anointed one because he is anointed with the Holy Spirit as our prophet, priest, and king. Christ is not his last name, right? It's his title. And as his ordination service, his coronation, this is marking the beginning of his ministry. It's equipping him. Similar to how perhaps King Charles was given over all this regalia to symbolize he is being equipped for this task as king. Well, Jesus is equipped with the Holy Spirit because his time has come. So symbolizing, not that he lacked anything, but God the Father saying, now is his time to execute his role as redeemer in the power of the Spirit. Now, Jesus himself actually describes his anointing of the Spirit in this way as his equipment, so to speak. For ministry, He says in Matthew 12, verse 28, after he heals a demon-possessed man, he declared, If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or if you think uh, at the very start of his ministry, as, as we'll see later, in the synagogue, he reads from the scroll. He reads from Isaiah chapter 61. And what does he read? But a text that declares that his ministry is spirit-empowered. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
In Jesus' own words, Spirit is equipping him for his mission. But also the Apostle Peter declares this very clearly in Acts, Acts 10. He says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all those who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. If you want to see Jesus as king, understand his coronation service, you need to understand the Holy Spirit is not only confirming his mission, not only symbolizing to you that he is a friendly, so to speak, savior that you should approach, but he also has the equipment necessary to save, to fight temptation, to do everything that we could not do in terms of obeying God and his word. He accomplishes his mission in the power of this spirit. Your way to get from here, the wilderness of life, to the promised land then, is in the same power of that spirit. Notice here that Jesus, when he's anointed with the spirit, notice it doesn't say the spirit came on him suddenly and left. It says it actually rests on him. Did you notice that in verse 16? That's important because in the Old Testament, the Spirit was given to unique people for unique times, this this special empowering. Samson, for example, the Spirit was said to rush on him. Saul, the Spirit was on him, and then the Spirit left him. We see this in the Old Testament. But in Jesus, the Spirit does not leave. It rests. It dwells on him, resides on him. And so too, you believer. If Jesus is your king, the Spirit rests on you. It gives you new life. It empowers you to follow Christ as your king. The same Spirit that hovered and brooded over the waters of chaos in Genesis 1. The same Spirit that brought creation to life, that breathed life into Adam. The same Spirit that enabled Jesus to endure everything he faced the temptation in the wilderness that we'll see in the next chapter, the same spirit whom Jesus will later promise after he departs the earth, the same spirit that was poured out at Pentecost and empowered his church, is the same spirit that rests on you. It anoints you, believer, so that you can endure any trial of this life so that you can endure temptation in the wilderness, so that you can resist Satan. That's the only way you're going to get from here in this life, trials and temptations, to there, the promised land, the kingdom of heaven, with Jesus as king. Jesus has been commissioned to gather, to protect, to lead his people through this wilderness and by humbly submitting to him as king by relying on him as your substitute through the empowering of the Holy Spirit he will lead and guide you as well we're assured of that you're assured of that through witnessing this coronation ceremony today you and I need to see We need to hear what kind of king Jesus is. Listen to God's voice presenting him to you today. 
This is my beloved son. Do not hesitate to approach him. Do not hesitate to come to him. He came for you to be with you, a sinner, to stand with you, sinner. He's come to rescue sinner like you and confess even on your behalf. And so again, I say his baptism reveals to us that he is the promised Messiah, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, who leads his people out of this wilderness into the promised land. And so I want to close with these questions for you. Have you humbled yourself before him as John the Baptist did? Are you pleased with him as God the Heavenly Father is? Do you love him as the Heavenly Father does? Do you rely on him and his righteousness? What is stopping you from going to him? What's stopping you from humbly welcoming him? He is peaceful, merciful, is a gracious king. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for these words. What a beautiful text that shows us Jesus clearly as our promised Messiah and King. Our Father, we pray that your spirit that fell on Christ and anointed him would now press these words onto our hearts to help us see Jesus more clearly, love him more deeply, follow him more closely as he leads us through this wilderness of life. Help us to not just be hearers of these words, but doers of these words as well. We ask it all in our King's name, in Jesus' name. Amen.